This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks again so much for coming to LitBooks on uh, Saturday afternoon. My name is Minhan, and uh, I own the shop. We're so glad that you could make it here today, and we are very excited by the new Murakami that just came out, Killing Commendatory. I see a lot of you already have the book, and I hope some of you have already gotten into the book. But if not, Uma is here to lead you through it. And uh, also, to my right here is uh, Tae Chae Siang. Chae Siang is the band leader for WVC Jazz and a self-confessed Harukist. I think that's how that's the. Is that what term. we call them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know someone who actually has a T-shirt, the Harukist Fan Club. So, Chae Siang might, might be their uh, honorary president. Anyway, uh, I'm going to uh, leave things up to Uma. Uma, take it away, man. All right. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Paganapake Pagan. Last weekend, I got to do something I've always wanted to. I hosted a book party. That's right, a book party, where we celebrated the launch of the new Murakami novel. As always, the folks at Lit Books in Tropicana Avenue were kind enough to lend us their space, where Fong Min Han, Teche Siang, and myself, along with 40 of you hardcore Harukists, got together to celebrate the work of the Japanese master. Now, on the show today, we will be playing you a little bit of the conversation that took place on Saturday evening. We kick things off by talking about our first encounters with Haruki Murakami. Good evening, folks. Thank you so much for spending your Saturday evening with us. So this was part of a little experiment that uh, Elaine Minhan and I decided to do, which was we were wondering whether people would pay to come for one of our book events. We've done these for free for the longest time, but we thought, you know, maybe Murakami fans are the best people to tap when it comes (laughs) to things like this, because we know you're dedicated to the cause. And then we spoke to the publishers and the distributors, and we were like, hey, could we give people something if they pay to come, and yeah, and so we managed to get these goodie bags, and we managed to get a good discount on the book, and all of that stuff to kind of make it worth your while. I've wanted to do one of these for a long time, which is kind of different from what we usually do, which is a thematic conversation about something, but I've always wanted to do something dedicated to a specific book or writer, and I guess there are few writers out there that kind of command this sort of fan base. I mean, if there was a new Harry Potter book that came out, I'm sure people would flock to that sort of thing. But Murakami has a kind of cult status among a lot of readers across the world. And it's great because you either love him or you absolutely hate him, right? It's so divisive. I've never met a person who's gone, yeah, I'm all right with him. I'm okay. Just speaking from one, I, I hated Murakami. Yeah. When I first opened this bookshop, I refused to stalk Murakami. You gotta, honestly, you can ask my wife, you can ask... I refused to stalk Murakami, and I was like, Murakami, overrated. What is this, man? It's like, I'm not going to waste time stalking the book. But only because you read the wrong one. That's, it's exactly because I read the wrong one. And it wasn't until this gentleman on my right, Che Xiang, said, Hey, Minhan got a great idea. I'd like to do a jazz performance here based on, on, on Murakami. And I was like, <laughs> But, but, you know what? Um, I binge read a lot of Murakami in the last two months. And I have to say, I've crossed the line. You know, I, I'm, I'm no longer a Murakami hater. 
I wouldn't call. I, I don't think I'm a Murakami lover, but uh, I'm, I'm definitely not on the other side of the wall right now. Before we get into Killing Commendatore, which is this brand new book, and we promise no spoilers because a lot of you may have just bought the book, I thought we'd just talk about, I guess, our first encounters in Murakami. We also want to hear from you guys since you're fans, and you can tell us your stories as well. So my, my first encounter was in 2001, and it was with Norwegian Wood. It was the first Murakami that I read. The only reason I picked up that copy was because it was this special edition which came in this Japanese box, and there were red and green paperbacks, and, and it was split into two volumes, and it was just a beautiful edition. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know who Murakami was. This was almost 20 years ago, and I was like, wait a minute, isn't that a Beatles song? What's this guy doing? And then, and then I kind of read the book, and for me, Murakami felt very different to all the other Japanese authors that I used to read, Mishima, Banana Yoshimoto, all of this stuff, because he didn't feel like a Japanese author. He felt like an American author. And in his style of prose, and, and I had a feeling it went beyond just the translation because even his cultural checkpoints and points of reference were all incredibly American. And I was hooked, like from the musical choices. His books read very musically, and I think that's why Chesiang could craft an entire jazz performance around it, not just by the references he makes in the books, but actually in his style of storytelling as well. So Norwegian Wood was the first one I bought, and then after that I progressively binge-read all of his stuff. I would go back every time I finished another one and picked up another copy. Chesiang, what about you? What was your first Murakami? And, and, and Chesiang's unique because he reads all of the Murakamis in Chinese and in English. Yeah, that, that, that are available. Oh, that are available, <coughs> yes. Yeah, so um, same thing with that, with that Norwegian wood cover, you know, the, the green and red one. So I think about five years ago, they came out with a Chinese version, also this same packaging. Because this was the original packaging for Japanese version when it first came out and hit the market and become so huge that Murakami, in one of his travelogues, he actually wrote that after he finished, he, he wrote uh, Norwegian Wood when he was in Rome, when he was in Greece, and then he did the, the editing when he was in Bath, uh, uh, England. So then he came back to Japan, published the book, become such a big hit, he actually had to run away because when he looked at that big banners... Oh, it was crazy cult following. People used to wear badges as to whose exactly. side they were on, exactly, right? And yeah. this was long before Twilight. <laughs> so, so he had to run away, actually, uh, after that. My first encounter with uh, Murakami was 1993. Yeah. Also, Norwegian Wood. It was in my high school's uh, library, Chinese version, published by a Hong Kong publisher and translated by a Malaysian woman. Oh, wow. Her name is Ye Hui. So she was the first ever translator for Chinese version in the world. So that, at that time, he kind of, I mean, when I talked to her, she kind of mentioned something about, oh, because she needs some kind of money, so and this is kind of like big, and then so translated that. So uh, that version didn't really become the, how to say, the, the standard version. The standard version was, uh, have to be slightly later from Taiwan by Lai Mingzhu. So, uh, so Ye Hui, she's now in Kampa, teaching in Utah. She just finished her uh, 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 dissertation on her doctorate. She uh, studied like, you know, Japanese literature. But she stopped translating uh, Murakami. 
because like the, the translation rights were, was given to the Taiwanese now, so she's no longer. But she still writes a lot of articles and still joins the symposium every year. Did you love Norwegian wood from the get-go? I mean, is that, what, is that where it started? At, at that time, I was only 13. <laughs> I, I don't know if I would give a 13-year-old Norwegian wood to read. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I was, I, was way, I was reading about all these... <laughs> you know, university students. At the end, like, Watanabe was like, having sex with Reiko, kind of 40 years old women with uh, all, you know, wrinkles and whatnot. At that time, I was like, what is happening? <laughs> but, 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 for some reason, I just kept on. So after his Norwegian Wood, I read 1973, The Pinball uh, Machine. And then also listen to the Song of Wind. And then, like, you know, I just keep on following. I, I never gave, gave up. Then afterwards, I, I hit Hot Boy Wonderland. Maybe I was 15 at that time. It was quite confusing, you know, like, first chapter is this world, second chapter is this world. Then I like, keep on doing this. But to me, it was like eye-opener. It was like, oh, how, you know, especially when you hit, like, maybe chapter 36, 37, when he mentioned, you know, that, that music, Danny Boy, when he played that uh, accordion and then that girl, that librarian, she, she did not know what is song, what is music. And then when he pressed a few keys and then Danny Boy came out. To me, it's like explosion. Wow! Like, because at the time, I was like, really into music as well. I was learning, learning to you know, appreciate jazz and whatnot. So that, that book became my favourite until... Until today, it's still my favorite. Okay, Minhan, why don't you tell people again your first encounter and why you hated it so much? All right. So, um, I probably picked up Kafka on a shore about 15 years ago. Everyone's just like, oh. <laughs> I got through it. I got through Kafka and I liked it. I, I really, I like Kafka on the shore. But for whatever reason, the second book I picked up was 1Q84. Oh, wrong, wrong, wrong. And I still remember I can't get past page 20. You know, I, I put it down after page 20. It's, it's basically in my list of difficult books that I probably should read at some point. Other candidates in there are... Ulysses. Ulysses, uh, Infinite Jest, um, Moby Dick. Although I, I'm about halfway through Moby Dick. Um, and, but but, but, but um, 1Q84 is definitely there. It's last on the list, but it's there. And so f after that, for the next 10 years, 10 plus years, I just decided Murakami overrated, you know? People like Murakami, you are so plebeian. What the heck are you talking about? <laughs> and, uh, and so last year when there was the big Nobel Prize coming up and it was a big debate, Ishiguro or, or Murakami, Ishiguro all the way, man. What the heck is this? <laughs> so anyway, so it's, it's really thanks to this gentleman on, on my right that I'm sitting here today because, like I said, he basically just comes up to me when he says, I love your bookshop, I want to do a jazz show here. What are you going to do it on? Murakami is like, oh. Okay, I own the joint. I don't have a single Murakami book. I better bring some Murakami books in here. If I bring some Murakami books in here, I better read some of them. And I started with uh, South of the Border, West of the Sun. And uh, I thought, okay, this is a lot more palatable than, uh, than I remembered Murakami being. And once I finished that, Heartwell Wonderland. Again, it's like, okay, I, I know this is going to be weird, but it's, 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 it's surprisingly manageable. Uh, and then and, and Elephant Vanishes and uh, Colorless Sukuru. And slowly but surely, I think I became 
like I said, I'm not really a Harukist, but at the same time, though, I think I can sort of appreciate what he's trying to do now. Earlier this afternoon, Che Xiang showed me this uh, Murakami bingo. I'm not sure if you've seen that. It's basically a comic, right? It's a comic strip of uh, the themes that cats Murakami uses. Breasts. <laughs> yeah. Running. Music. Jazz. Ear fetish. Yeah. yeah so, so, so that's <laughs> it, right? Go. It's and about right. And, we were, and, and uh, we were talking about Killing Commendatory, and it was like, you know what? It checks all the boxes. It checks all the boxes. So if you're a Murakamist, yeah. that is like, this is your ideal yeah. book, like. I'm not, I'm not a full convert yet. I'm not a full Harukist. Um, and maybe binge reading Murakami is not the best idea in the world, to be honest, because I think you do detect a lot of the similar themes being played over and over again. And to be fair, I, I find that a lot of authors that have, a lot of writers that have a certain cult following, and I don't know if it's by design, have a, a style, a sense of repetition, which their fans seem to enjoy, right? Gaiman does it all the time, uh, Pratchett does it all the time, Aaron Sorkin does it a lot when he writes for television and film, and, and Murakami does the same thing, and that's why you can have a nice little game of bingo like that, right? <laughs> you know, for me, I think one of the things that I love most about Murakami, and I don't think it gets spoken about enough, I mean, people accuse him of being not Japanese enough, right? I'm not really sure what that means. I, I, I don't know what that means either, but I think it, it speaks to us as Malaysians, as consumers of literature, and also even if you're a Malaysian writer, it's the same thing. We struggle with the sense of identity, right? Who are we as a Malaysian writer? Do we write in English? Do we write in BM? Do we write in our own mother tongues? Whatever that may be. And Murakami is someone who I think has been absolutely blatant about his influences and where they come from. Mainly American, jazz, rock music, F. Scott Fitzgerald, which is a theme that runs through this entire book. And He's embraced it so completely and wholeheartedly that I think he actually makes Japanese literature richer for it because his is very globalized. And I don't think he writes it to sell books. Because if he did, then he'd be doing 100 interviews and stuff, and he just likes to jog by himself in Central Park and like avoid the world, right? Yeah. So in that sense, I think his is a Japanese literature that we don't often see, and one that's actually a lot more global than what we usually get translated into English. Uh, definitely, I agree with that. But at the same time, I do think that he's a very Japanese writer. Maybe he doesn't really write about to the Westerner kind of uh, point of view, very exotic kind of Jap Japanese kind of thing. Recently, I'm really into David Foster Wallace. I'm, I'm now actually reading Infinite Jazz, about 400 pages now. It's really tough. It's really tough. But, <laughs> but... Pfft, also, <laughs> so anyway, um, so I compared them a lot because because I kind of like read quite a few uh, David Foster Wallace, and then of course I read a lot of Murakami, and I find because I know that David Foster Wallace at the end killed himself, like after the success of Infinite Jazz, and also one of his uh, last books was The Pale King. I, I I kind of finished it. It's an unfinished work, but it's amazing. It's amazing, but kind of like, they kind of talk a lot about the mundanity of daily lives and whatnot. But one person decide, kind of I see the Japanese in it is that Japanese is really good at making mundanity become an art form, Zen, Buddhism kind of thing. Um, I go to Japan a lot, my wife is Japanese and, and kind of, and I, I try to you know more about Japan a lot more. And I kind of find that mm, Japanese are good at that. And in his books, 
That's kind of like, yeah, that, that cooking spaghetti and ironing that shirt, like 20 different steps. I mean, when I was younger, I was kind of oh, impatient about it. But now, when I reach this age, I kind of like, I really appreciate that. I find that's a really good strategy on the part of Murakami to let you get into the mind of his characters. And Minhan and I were talking about this when we were reviewing the book. And it's weird. It feels a little jarring at first. You're just hearing this guy, this unnamed protagonist in Killing Commendatory, and he's taking you through his POV of his wife breaking up with him and the conversation they're having and him jumping into a car and going on a road trip and all of this stuff. And it feels very jarring because it's just someone talking at you for a while. And then you kind of hit like chapter three, chapter four, and then you find that you're in it. Like you forget that this guy is talking at you and suddenly you're in his mind and then you're just along for the ride because there's a bit of a mystery as well, right? And the way the... The way the, the way the conversation or the way the narrative is structured, when you reach chapter three or chapter four, he brings up the painting, which is what Killing Commendatory is, and he's like, you know, there are two things that happen, but let me start with the painting. And so you're like, oh, what's up with this painting? And you flip the page, right? Yeah, it's a very interesting strategy that he employs, and I think he employs it in a lot of his writing. He uses it in A Wild Sheep Chase. He uses it yeah, in yeah. Uh, Sputnik Sweetheart. Yeah. But having said that, though, I mean... I've been asked this question quite a few times over these last few days, ever since we've had the book in shop, whether or not Killing Commandatory is a good introduction to Murakami. And from my... I mean, I think Uma and I disagree over this. I say it actually is, because there are three things going for it, right? Uh, for those of you with the book already, you'll know that it's a very readable and accessible book, compared to something else, like even Hard Boiled Wonderland, for example. Hard Boiled Wonderland, although it's... You know, Chaseng loves it, and I know why he loves it. But the thing is, is that the writing is not always the easiest to get into. And the way that the chapters alternate between two different stories makes it especially hard for readers to get into it. So whereas with Killing Commendatory, it reads like a mystery. Even the prologue itself sort of gives you that sense as to, oh, there's something to be solved here. All right? I don't want to, I don't want to give anything too much away, but because of that, it's very readable, it's very pacey, and it keeps you turning the page. In fact, I would say, of all the Murakami books I've read so far, it's probably the most accessible of the lot. So the reason I disagree with that and say that this isn't the best work to start with is not because I disagree with Minhan's assessment. I agree. It is very pacey, very, very readable. But it is very Murakami. And I think we love it more because we know who he is and the kind of metaphors he constantly implies and the kind of tropes that he goes back to. And so there's a sense of familiarity for us who've read a lot of his work that we're like, oh, that's cute. And, oh, it's, uh, like, it's very self-referential at points, but in a good way. And I am always fearful that another reader who maybe has heard about this, like the cats and the breasts and all this stuff, will just be like, oh, it's so cliched. It's the kind of stuff that I've heard before. Uh, I'm just reminded of a quote from the, uh, the Guardian's review of the book. And, and in this one quote, the reviewer basically said, this killing commandatory, it's a lot more absorbing and a lot less profound than Murakami wanted it to be. <laughs> and and that's, that's essentially what the book is, right? It's, it's, it's the greatest hits of Murakami rolled into one. But Jason, what do you think? Do you think that it's a good way to start into Murakami? For me, maybe not, really. I would, I would I'll recommend his earlier books. Maybe those very easy ones, like Norwegian Wood, South of the Border. Those are the really good ones. I mean, I mean like, very easy to read and then like, a lot of plots. This one, kind of, for me, very long-winded. <laughs> he just keep on talking, talking to him, and then, oh, you are at it again. Yeah. So for, for me, actually, like, 
his his work kind of feels like one meta work, kind of kind of kind of thing. That that's one big world that you kind of like oh always can go back and forth. Yeah. So, but but I have the patience So just to start talking a little bit about killing commendatory, um, he has been obsessed with Fitzgerald and specifically with the Great Gatsby, and he talks about how the Great Gatsby is the core behind this text. And in many ways, this text is an homage to Gatsby as well. And we run into um, Minshiki, who is a Gatsby-esque character in this book. Every time reviewers went into the Gatsby comparisons, I felt they missed a beat just because Gatsby is so American that I don't think it can be emulated anywhere else in the world. I think even Japanese people who want to be American aren't that... <laughs> like, they, you go to Japan, and you're like, your cultures are so varied, and Gatsby feels like a character that can only exist in the excesses of American culture and the American dream, right? Uh, but he does a very good job in creating this tech mogul neighbor of your nameless protagonist who ends up being on this weird misadventure, right, with a painting and all of that stuff. Uh, if you don't know, the story centers around... Your nameless protagonist, his wife has divorced him, he gets depressed and goes on a road trip, he comes back, he's a painter by profession, he rents a house from a good friend, um, the owner of the house is this friend's father who is also a painter, um, and then hijinks kind of ensue and weirdness happens and there are 20 narrative threads that kind of take place. Uh, after that point, la, which I won't give any away because they're all very fascinating. There are a couple of twists, there are a couple of surprises, and Minhan is right. It reads very much like a mystery novel uh, because you want to know what happens next. But just here, I was going to ask you, you read the Chinese version and the English version. Um, Chinese versions usually get translated a lot quicker. Yes. They come out first. Can you, can you tell us if there are any major points of difference between the two versions? No, I, don't, I, I think the storyline are basically the same. And I, I'm not I'm not scholar. I don't like pre, like compare text and, and try to find out what the difference is. But I can I can I can tell that when the commando Tore when he call the the protagonist he call him my friend, but in the Chinese translation he call him in kind of like an ancient Chinese way of calling you. So in Japanese it's Kimi. So it's like like a, a, a polite way of saying you, but in in, in the English version is my friend. So it's kind of, maybe, you know, the tone is a bit different. Junzi, the jun. So it's like, oh, jun, you know, something. So it's and the implication of that just meaning it's slightly more polite, polite slightly more kind proper? Of like, yeah, slightly more proper. And also, he's from Asuka period. So that's kind of like the ancient way of, yeah, you know, like, uh, like acknowledging you. But then at the same time, because of doing this, I, I, I went and, you know, searched some articles about translations. But because... You know, however much we want to say that, oh, we love Murakami, but we are not Mur reading Murakami, actually. We're not. We're not. All of us are not. We are reading the translation of Murakami. And, and, and the best possible approximation <laughs> of what Murakami is, right? So in the Chinese world, and we have these problems of the Taiwanese translation and the mainland China translation. Even the mainland Chinese translation nowadays, in this decade or so, there are two main translators that fight each other. The first one who started it, he started it about 25, 30 years ago. He started with Norwegian Wood. So he was a, a guy who was studying in Tokyo. He was studying actually ancient literature, classic literature of, of Japan. But then, same thing, he needs money. So, oh, this, this book that's sold really well, please translate it. So he, he hated it. 
he really like just do it as a job. And he kind of like come from, you know, we look at China today, it's a totally different world. 30 years ago, we are talking about these people are actually like kind of like not open up yet and kind of like, so his translation, I have to say, when I read it, it's like very kampong. Very, very kampong. But as you know, Murakami is very urban. You know, even like this guy like translates some like jazz titles. It's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> what the hell? You know, that kind of feeling. So, so I kind of like this, this guy's translation, even though a lot of uh, commentators kind of commented that this guy's uh, Japanese is more proper. You know, the translation is more proper and more pretty. But for some reason, a lot of my friends, all of us who are reading Murakami's, we love the Taiwanese translation way more. Very urban, this one. And also, the, actually, the Chinese sounds quite strange if we read, you know, as a Chinese work. But somehow, the rhythm, the kind of the, the, the intricateness or even the strangeness of Chinese just sounds to us, we say, this is Murakami language. But in fact, it's the translator's language. So it's, it's very interesting to, to make that comparison. Yeah. So Murakami's influence kind of extends beyond just literature, right? Recently, there was a film out called Burning, yes. which was weird. It was, a, it was a Korean movie. It was based on a Murakami short story that was first published in the New Yorker magazine, I think almost 10 years ago. Very loosely based, mind you. And so filmmakers take inspiration in a lot of Murakami's work. And I think musicians do as well. I, if I'm not mistaken, you can go on Spotify. I don't know if someone's actually done this. But I think there's an entire playlist of yeah, yeah, yeah. Jazz. all... But no, no, just jazz, but everything. Like all of the songs they could find that have been featured in Murakami books. For the longest time, that playlist was available on harukimurakami.com, but it was absolutely impossible to find all of the tracks online. I think now someone's actually done it and done a close, a very, very close approximation of everything that's featured. So in that sense, reading the book while listening to the music and yeah, it, it just adds to, it just gives you a completely different experience as to, that goes kind of beyond the book and it feels weird in this age of multimedia that it should be something that we kind of experiment and play with. And I don't know if he actually intended people to do that. But, but I actually think it's quite important because, um, coming back to this topic of translation, because we're not actually reading Murakami, it's really hard for us English readers to really say that there is a lyrical quality to the Murakami. I can't say that a prose is beautiful. I mean, the translator's prose might be beautiful, but was this the author's intention? I can't really say. So in... In very many ways, we are trapped within the translate as well. But when you look at Mur when you read Murakami's stuff, he references so many of these things, right? Um, um, south of the border, west of the sun. It's napkin called South of the Border. Uh, in Killing Commandatory, it's a lot. It's Don Giovanni from Mozart. So the fact that you are actually able to listen to that and at least try to get some sense as to what is going on in his mind sort of takes you beyond just the text itself to something a bit more original or originary in the Murakami. And, and I, I appreciated that. Uh, in fact, so much so that after, when, when I was reading Killing Commandatory, I would actually put on some earphones and listen to the Don Giovanni that comes up, the Rosen uh, Cavalier as well uh, by, by Strauss. I mean, I've, I don't know what these pieces are, but once you, when, when you are reading it and you're just listening to tunes, oh, pour yourself a whiskey also if you like whiskey because, <laughs> because whiskey is pretty much a thing in Murakami. Yeah, yeah, Shivas. Uh, Shivas or Johnny Walker, I think. Those are the two staples. So these things actually help 
take you out of the translator's text and brings you a little bit closer to what Murakami was intending. Or at least I think so. What do you think? I agree. I, 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 think, I think that sense of connection is there. And also, and I don't know if it's easier for us. Uh, I say us as in Malaysians, just because I think there are, there's so much culture that we are exposed to from the outside world in general as Malaysians, more so than many other countries in the world. Uh, yes. We've grown up with so much more American music and British music and jazz and opera and all of this stuff, the kind of things we see on television, and, and, and it's been with us for the longest time, right? And so I don't know if we can make these connections easier, and so we find ourselves lost in those worlds a lot simpler than most because that requires a lot less explaining of what it is. Uh, for me, Murakami played a great influence in my appreciation of jazz. Uh, I was in my early 20s, I knew nothing about jazz when I first started reading Murakami, but the more I read about it, it made me want to explore the music that he kept talking about. And what was great was as I was, and I'm sure you must appreciate this as well, as I'm reading the words in the book and I'm listening to the music that he's talking about, there's a greater weight to both things because now I cannot listen to South of the Border without picturing Murakami, all those two characters lost in love and all of that stuff in the streets yes. of Tokyo, right? Yeah, yeah. I kind of um, feel that as a Chinese reader of Murakami, we are very blessed because I would say close to 50 titles were translated into Chinese. Uh, not just novels, not just novellas, not just short stories, but a lot of articles. He used to write for magazine. So those were compiled into, you know, like all these, you know, uh, compilations. And also he wrote a lot about music. There was even like two or three books of his music critics was you know, published in books. And then he wrote two volumes of jazz portraits. And he worked with an uh, illustrator. So illustrator will draw those, like, you know, the portraits of jazz musicians. And he will write his own rhapsody about all these musicians. So we, we get to enjoy those now. But you guys cannot, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and he write really, really good travelogues. Really, really good travelogues. So I really love the one that he wrote about when he was uh, composing Norwegian Wood in, in Greece. That was like compiled into two books. And then there was one collection of travelogues that he traveled to like Mongolia before he wrote Chronicle, Wine Albert Chronicle. So about that war in Mongolia. And also, uh, oh, he wrote about Sydney Olympics. It's, it's become a book, even. So yeah, we, 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 we get a lot more. We, we are reading translated works. And also, Jay Rubin in one of the interviews says that if you are reading, reading my translations of Murakami, you are actually reading 90% of my words. That's what he said. But at the same time, if without Murakami, can Jay Rubin write this book? Maybe no. So it's, it's a little bit like jazz. So uh, for us, we play standards. You know, we play Somewhere Over the Rainbow. But if we don't, I mean, we, we, we pride ourselves of, you know, playing five choruses of solos, whatever. You know, we, we do paint a, a, a different pictures based on that song. But still, we need that original to come up with our version of Somewhere over the rainbow. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's like a, it's a, it's a version, it's a rendition, it's an interpretation, right? Yeah. That's what translation is. And our language evolves and changes. And who knows what a Murakami translation is going to sound like in 
20 years or 30 years. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, in English, in Chinese, it's going to be different. If you, look at, if you look at the various versions of Don Quixote that are out there, it's fantastic because just doing a basic comparison of the first chapter alone and you see how much the English language has changed over the last few hundred years um, that they've been translating that book. And it is really quite fascinating because it feels a lot more, it becomes a lot more accessible to us as English readers, but I don't know how far it strays from the original, right? Even though it is a, a, translation work, a translated work that we read, um, the fact that it is, that it is, I mean, it's a melange of homages, right? It's not just to The Great Gatsby. Uh, just a quick show of hands. How many of you people here actually like The Great Gatsby? Minority. See, Uma, it's a minority. What, whatever, like, just because you don't like it. <laughs> I can't Stop stand... Stop trying to build up a following. I can't stand The Great Gatsby. I think it's one of the most overrated novels ever written. <laughs> But but because but because killing I mean because killing commendatory I mean yes uh, it's he, he quite publicly states that it is an homage to the Great Gatsby and if I'm not mistaken I think he very recently translated the Great Gatsby but because as an homage it only borrows the structure and the shadow of the Great Gatsby I actually found Murakami's Great Gatsby a lot more interesting than the original Great Gatsby and 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 this sort of sort of feeds into this whole notion of of, of translation right because the Great Gatsby has been translated into Killing Commendatory so has Alice in Wonderland and a lot of you must know that Murakami has this strange fetish with Alice in Wonderland you know, the white rabbit makes an appearance almost all the time in different guises, and it's always about being trapped underground and making your way back up through again. So, I mean, the, all these things are prevalent in Killing Commandatory, so if you are a Harukist, you would probably read this and go, ah, bingo. But similarly, I think he has managed to put his own touch to these homages. I think yes. he has managed to create something very original and very interesting um, towards the second half of the book. There's a very clear point at which Murakami tells you how to read his work, which is quite interesting. Uh, as, even as a writer, as an author, doing that to your reader and doing that to your audience is a very interesting step in kind of forcing you to read a book in a specific way, which I find is, is, is quite controlling and, 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 and fun at the same time, right? The other thing about Killing Commendatory, which, is, which I think is, so people are asking me, oh, where would you rank this as a Murakami work, and that's a question you end up getting all the time, right? Whenever a writer is as established as this, you know, he's in his late 60s, I think he's 69? Late 60s, yeah. Late 60s right now, um, people are talking about Nobel Prizes and all of that stuff, and every time a new book comes out, everyone will be like, oh, is it his best? Where would you rank it? Top five, what would you say? For me, my personal preferences aside, because I tend to like his slimmer volumes, for his slimmer volumes and the style he employs in his slimmer volumes remind me a lot of Graham Greene and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And that's why I like them so much, because I think Graham Greene's slim volumes, whatever they may be, are very perfect pieces of prose, because he's such a tremendous writer in his, in his sparseness of prose. And I think when Murakami employs that, it's really, really good. But my personal preferences aside, I think this ranks right up there as one of his best, just because of the sheer scope of it, and what he's tried to put out there, and I guess even the commentary on... Japanese life and Japanese society, and it's very contemporary. That's something I find that is quite rare for older writers, whether it's American British writers or even Japanese writers. Murakami is someone that doesn't feel out of touch with today's society. You know, when you used to read even new books by Philip Ross, you're like, yeah, Philip Ross, you're still in the 70s, right? It, it feels like an old guy writing. This does not feel like an old guy writing, and I think that's quite impressive. 
I would say it's very easy to read, that it goes very fast. Yeah. Um, favorite? No? One of your favorites? Still no. Still no. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of hold on to, yeah, to, to, to my old favorites. I, I guess also, I, I guess it's very uh, unfair to kind of compare that because I, I know that when, when I was younger, you know, my, my palettes are fresher and things like that. And then it's easier to be surprised when you're young, true, right? True, 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 true. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of have a, uh, how to say, a, a, a theory that he seems to be writing this for his father, uh, huh. who, who went to uh, China in the World War II. His father was a priest. And when he was getting that um, Jerusalem Prize, that, that speech about eggs and the high walls and whatnot, he actually mentioned his father. His father actually passed away around that time. He was saying that how his father came back from China, not talked too much about what happened during the war, and then he kind of looked at his father's uh, back and kind of see something really dark there. You know, this, this whole book gave me that feeling, kind of like, you know, when he mentioned the Nanjing massacre, of course. And, and, and if I feel that Murakami kept, kept on writing this, like after dark, you know, this, this guy was like kind of like through a CCTV looking at that girl like sleeping there soundly or in this book there was some like hideous sex going on and things like that. Kind of like that, that darkness keep on resurfacing in he, all his works. So he keeps on kind of like using many, many works over 20, 30 years kind of try to keep on coming back to this, this, this problem that Japanese society or maybe the world is kind of facing. Yeah, I, think, I think I would actually agree with that because the theme of redemption but without really redeeming, <laughs> redemption without redemption is prevalent in a lot of Murakami's books, at least the ones that I've read. And again, it's prevalent here as well. Um, to call it closure, I think, would be to call it a little bit too, is, is to do it at the service, but to call it redemption is also not quite accurate because who is getting redeemed and what are you getting redeemed from? Um, but it's, it's interesting because that theme of darkness that Che Xiang mentioned is prevalent in this book. But what does he do with the darkness, right? Um, and Murakami leaves it on a cliffhanger, as he does with almost every book. I mean, he, he tells you the, the process, the, the, the journey of the protagonist as he goes under and comes back out again, to use Nietzschean terminology, to go under and come back out and somehow you are a different person when that happens. That's, that's what Nietzsche says. But whether or not you actually fully redeem yourself in the process of doing so, I think Murakami leaves it very much up to their mm. own readers to decide. I mean, it's the same in this book. Uh, Colorless Sukuru 2, for example, and even South of the Border, West of the Sun. Again, the protagonist goes through a whole process of trying to redeem himself, and at the end, you want to give him a happy ending. Murakami tells us he's happy. No, he doesn't tell you he's happy. There is no happy ending, just like real life. Well, there isn't a sad ending either. Well, it's not a sad ending. There's just an open-ended ending. It's just an ending. Yes, it's just, it's an, just ending. an ending. It just yeah. stops. But he always, I think, gives you enough information for you to make up your own mind. I, I, I googled. I, I, every, <laughs> I, at the end of every Murakami novel, I Google search for, okay, so what really happened? What do you guys what think? What do you think yeah, happened, yeah. right? No, it's, it's like, I mean, it's, it's somehow not satisfying for me to just come up with my own answer unless there are two angry commenters who agree with me. No, that's what really happened. Uh, 
All right, uh, we've been talking for a long time now. Let's hear what you guys have to say, Murakami fans. Yeah, um, I mostly agree with the, what you guys have been discussing about recently. It's a lot more accessible uh, compared to the other ones. Uh, if you're uh, if you're trying to get into Murakami and you're introduced to all this, you know, strange characters, this alternate realities and different kinds of surrealist fiction, it becomes really overwhelming depending on which book that you start with. I'm sure you've experienced that. But you start off with this and uh, they start off with real, like non-fiction, real-life issues and with references to society happening in Japan where he's able to articulate what dark parts of society can be seen as he's like living in Japan here and there in a very readable format. So, you know, when I bought the book just a few days ago and trying to read as much as I can before you guys spoil everything, but I'm happy that you guys aren't spoiling anything, right? I wanted to read as much as I can. I don't know. For me, my first Murakami book was Kafka on the Shore and I absolutely loved it. So I think I'm the kind of person that I, I appreciate Murakami's style, the mundane. So when he talks about the mundane, that's where I feel he gets me because, I don't know, when I read Murakami's book, I feel like his style of writing interprets what I, my perspective of the world. So, I mean, perhaps that's me. Most probably because a little bit more unusual than most people, what most people would think. So it's been, a, it's been some time since I read Murakami Murakami's more abstract way of writing. So this book is definitely, yeah, easier to read and easier to understand. Because for me personally, I would always think that Norwegian Wood has always been a more literal, at the style, it's more easier to understand. And I would recommend that to people who actually ask me what book I should start reading. I didn't notice like the bingo things. Like, yeah, yeah, everything happened. Oh yeah, no wonder it felt so familiar. <laughs> no surprises there. But yeah, I mean, I can't wait to find out what happens next. I have some theories on what's going to happen. And that's gonna, um, I'm going to see whether that's going to happen. Uh, okay, okay. It will happen, right? No. Then when you WhatsApp us later, like, uh, we'll start a group, right? The Murakami spoiler group. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing I always look forward to in a Murakami book is the, uh, the role that he assigns to both the internal life and the external life. He confuses that distinction between artistic impression and reality. Yeah. And this is something that happens throughout in all his books, and which is why it's, it's like, okay, what's real and what's not? That's not a question you should ask in a Murakami book. The moment you ask a question, then you are already lost. Do not ask that question. Everything is real and everything is not. Unfortunately, but true. Which is why if you're a very literal reader, if you, if you are someone who needs to have very clear distinctions between this is happening in the unconscious, this is happening in real life, you know, don't read Murakami. Yeah. Even, in killing, even in Killing Commandatory, those lines are blurred all the time. It's, it's blurred from the first chapter on. They leak through. I mean, the prologue. From the prologue. Yeah, from right? the prologue on, it's, it's, it's there. You don't know what's happening in the prologue. It's this weird faceless guy who wants his portrait painted. And you're like, what is happening? <laughs> and and this, is all, this is most clear in Hard Boiled Wonderland, where this distinction between reality and unreality are nicely divided into chapters for you, and yet the distinction is blurred. And to me, always when I read his book, I always look for that, that part about the transcendental values of art, be it music, but in this book, it's about paintings. That, that kind of always worked me up because as a, as a, as a musician, uh, I, I always kind of like, huh, he's very good at writing that. Yeah. You know, for instance, like Kafka on the Shore about this truck driver that, you know, like went to this coffee shop that the, the proprietors is playing him, classical music, listen to this, Beethoven's, the, the last uh, string quartet. And then he kind of like changed. 
And he's really good at writing about creative process as well. Like, yes. like my work as a novelist, that book, I love it. Which I don't is, know, in English, English it's uh, what I talk about when I talk about running. No, 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 no about no. writer. Oh, that's not translated to English. Oh, too bad. <laughs> it's so damn good. <laughs> I, I kind of compare it to uh, Orhan Pamuk's uh, Naive and Sentimental right. Novelist. That is a really good, good book as well. But Murakami wrote about his life as a novelist, his creative process, what he went through. It's a big book. It's amazing. <laughs> right, right to the publisher. Publish that! <laughs> <laughs> and there is that very romantic strain in Murakami's writings about the value of art, about the creative process as well. And it's, 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 it's so romantic that it almost gets to the point of I would say that if Murakami were not Japanese, I would probably not let an English novelist get away with it. How can you tell me that the painting of the Mona Lisa is going to redeem me? But the thing is that because, because it's we Murakami... For, we forgive because Japanese it's people ja a lot. No, no, but, but, but I think it's, it's an Asian thing, right? Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure, but for me personally, like when I watch my Hong Kong TV series, you know, it's like, and someone waxes poetic about... I mean, it could be like cooking. It could be a cooking movie. It's a Hong Kong cooking movie. And they'll talk about, oh, I've got my spirit in here and I'm going to use my whatever harmony with nature to come up with a perfect dish. It works because it's Asian. I'm Asian. I get it. And so even when Murakami waxes poetic and romantic about the creative process, I mean, I forget. You don't roll your eyes. I don't, yeah, I don't roll my eyes. It's not cringy. But I suspect that if it were a Western novelist writing, about this, writing in the same way, and trying to basically bring into play all these various cultural forces and things like that, I'd probably say, what the heck, man? Who do you think you are, Paulo Coelho? <laughs> probably is Paulo Coelho. <laughs> Sorry, it probably is Paulo Coelho. Uh, anyone else? You can either tell us about your first encounters in Murakami, or you can add to the conversation, or, yeah. So some parts of that are quite related to uh, certain elements of Japanese values. So uh, wabi-sabi and mushin are most likely the ones where they talk about an appreciation for beauty. And some of these values are not only just, they're not taught. Uh, people grew up with that and accepted it and they made it as such. So some of the writers actually integrated it. And when they write stories like these, they have the assumption that uh, I have an appreciation for these kinds of images that represent these characters in my story, therefore I shall write them. And for Murakami, because he made such images so accessible by having, you know, factors from all around the world, influences and globalized. When we look at it, when we look at it, it's like, oh, okay. There's like an element of Japanese value, Japanese beauty, appreciation, plus Murakami's strange ideas, plus influences from all around the world. And you have something extremely unique and something that only works in that context. And then when you try to see something very similar somewhere else, it's like, what the hell? What, yeah. What's this yeah. going to do anything? So. Yeah. The only Murakami book I read from cover to cover is um, what I talk about when I talk about running. Which, so, is, amazing. which is amazing. Which is amazing. My question is for Chesiang. Uh, so, Jean Le Carré said that if your book is a cow, the translation should be a stock cube, a beef flavored stock cube, <laughs> not a chicken flavored one. Okay? Um, so, if you read in. Do, do you speak Japanese? Do you read Japanese? Okay. But the fact that you read in Chinese and English, what is it? Is it a beef cube or are both variants of the same animal or are they different? This is a hard, hard question. <laughs> but, 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 but then, you know, I, I thought about that because my first language, of course, is Chinese. 
it feel closer. And when I read English, somewhat, you know, further. So, but that that particular book, I read both as well. And and I think yeah, what what they are talking is basically kind of similar. It's just that it took me longer to read the English version. I would say half cow still. <laughs> so I speak and read Japanese. I ah. was yeah, and I was uh, I was on exchange in Tokyo for a year. I was studying Japanese back in Australia, and uh, uh, a lot of the exchange students, they love Murakami as well. It's gone to the point where uh, when we talk to our Japanese teachers about it, um, when we <laughs> asked about like, what kind of literature would we read, uh, the teacher actually changed the schedule to ask us to read a Murakami piece in complete Japanese, and it's for practice, and it's to keep their interest up. So I read, uh, I don't know if this is in Chinese, Tony uh, Takitani? Yep. That was a movie. That was a movie. Yes, that was a movie, yes. yes. So in, in the class, we, we were given a free copy of the whole story, and that was how we learned the kanji, and that's, that was how we learned how he would do his prose in Japanese, which is ten times harder than reading the English, because the, sometimes the metaphors are so strange. Like, they don't, they're, they're very different from how you would read an English version. All right, all right. Uh, uh, I, I, no, let's wrap the discussion, because... There's like over an hour of tape, but you have stuff to give away. Yes, I, don't know. Uh, I just want to make sure that everyone, who, uh, you've got a little slip of paper with a number so on it. So we had yes. a lucky draw. We gave out books and vouchers and limited edition dust jackets. It really was a lot of fun. Now, we do these once a month, sometimes twice. So be sure to come along for the next one. We will be doing a Halloween horror special on the 31st of this month. Go check out the Lit Books Facebook page for more information, and I hope to see see all of you there. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.